What a joy and a privilege and a blessing it is, my brothers and sisters, to worship the Lord together with each of you today. There is no place that I would rather be on the Lord's day than worshiping him, for that matter on any day, uh, than worshiping the Lord and worshiping the Lord with each of us, with us gathered together through whatever means and medium that we can do it to worship the Lord is our highest calling. Worshiping the Lord brings us joy, not just joy that comes while we are worshiping the Lord, but joy that abides even after we have said the benediction and the worship service has dismissed the joy of the Lord and the joy of worshiping the Lord abides with us. All of us who have been redeemed by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what joy it is for us to worship the Lord. And this joy remains with us no matter what we face in life from day to day. The joy abides. The happiness may come and go depending upon the circumstances, depending upon how we may feel or what we may be enduring at any given time. But the joy of the Lord remains. It abides. It never leaves us. And we are so thankful to the Lord for his joy that he has given us, the joy of our salvation. And so, brothers and sisters, this is the highest calling and the most important thing for us as Christians to worship the Lord our God, to worship his son, Jesus Christ. And it is the Holy Spirit who has enabled us, empowered us, and filled us to worship him. So let us be encouraged. We are in the right place at the right time, in the will of God, worshiping together on the first day of the week as a matter of the an offering of first fruits to the Lord at the beginning of the week uh, and during this morning time uh, to worship him. God is worthy uh, of our worship and do worship from us, his people, his creatures. So I want to encourage us. Let us continue to worship. Let us continue to worship him even now, brothers and sisters, as we prepare to hear and to receive God's word. Let us worship. Let us hear the word and listen to the word worshipfully and prayerfully. Now, in our series, Rediscovering the Gospel, we have been preaching since before Easter Sunday, back on April the 4th, we have been preaching 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. And remember, brothers and sisters, that after Christ died and was buried, he rose from the dead on the third day, after which he made numerous appearances to his disciples and the followers of Jesus over a period of 40 days. And so, brothers and sisters, if we were to count from the day that we celebrated Easter this year, Sunday, April the 4th, we are still within that 40-day period. 
And we have been preaching about the appearances of the Lord. And of course, last Sunday, uh, finally, uh, the testimony of Paul, the apostle, uh, who testifies that the Lord appeared to him even after the 40-day period and Jesus' ascension back into heaven. The Lord appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. But during that 40-day period, uh, the scripture gives us several episodes of Jesus appearing to and interacting with his disciples and with his followers. And today we want to see another episode of Jesus addressing his disciples, his followers, in Matthew chapter 28, the last verses of the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 28, beginning at verse 16, where we want to see today what Jesus says among his final words to his disciples before he is ascended back into heaven. He gives the great commission to them and to us. We call it the great commission because of the words that Jesus speaks here in Matthew chapter 28 to the disciples, words spoken directly to them, but also spoken to us as well, because our risen uh, and reigning Savior has still given us uh, work to do after he has ascended back into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit to enable us to do the work that he saved us to do. In Matthew chapter 28, beginning at verse 16, the Bible says there, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Now remember by this time, Judas had committed suicide. So there were only 11 disciples, uh, not 12. Verse 17 goes on. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, brothers and sisters, these words, particularly in verses 18, 19, and 20, give us our marching orders as the church. For not too many days after Jesus spoke these words to the original disciples and followers, he would ascend back into heaven. God the Father would send the Holy Spirit and bring into birth, into existence, the church for which Jesus had come and died to establish. And on the day of Pentecost, the church would be born. Acts chapter 2 records that. 
occurrence, that event, and the church would be charged with carrying out these words of great commission that Jesus had given to his disciples and followers and to all of us. To go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is important for us to be reminded of this great commission at such a time as this, during this period after which we have celebrated uh, the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to carry out the resurrection power that the Lord has given to his church, to carry out the calling that the Lord has given to his people. Every one of us who have been saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus has been called to this great commission. Every one of us has been called to be a part of these marching orders that our Savior has given to us. And so what we want to do today, brothers and sisters, is we want to walk through these words of commission from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we want to commit our souls and ourselves yet again to working, endeavoring to uh, fulfill this great commission to which he has called us by faith and by his grace. This is our calling. These are our marching orders. This applies to every single one of us as members of the body of Christ, as members of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and as members of this particular local congregation to which we all belong, Montrose Baptist Church. We all are called and given this commission all who have been genuinely born again by the blood of Jesus Christ. So these are your marching orders. These are my marching orders. We are to follow through on the Lord's marching orders each and every day of our lives. We should not look at this Great Commission as something that Jesus simply left for the followers, his original followers in the first century. No, this Great Commission is given to us, his followers, even in the 21st century. And so here we are at these magisterial words of order that Jesus gives to us. And let us look at them closely yet again. Let us, let us remind ourselves, brothers and sisters, of what he has told us to do what he has taught us to do and told us to do right here in these words. May God the Holy Spirit uh, cause these words to burn like fire within our hearts, like fire shut up within our bones, as the prophet Jeremiah said, so that we cannot keep it to ourselves, uh, so that we can't 
uh, just simply uh, be passive. These words call us not to passivity. These words call us to godly activity, activity that calls us to go forth, to do his work and his will for the sake of carrying the word of God and the testimony about Jesus to people who need the Lord, who need salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ as the only Savior and Lord. Now, there are three things that I want us to make note of today from these verses, from this Great Commission. We have, first of all, in verses 17 to 18, what I call the motive for making disciples. Then, secondly, we have, in the first part of verse 19, what I call the mandate for making disciples. And then, in verses 19, part B, and verse 20, the method for making disciples. The motive, the mandate, the method for making disciples all contained in these verses, particularly between verses 17 through 20. Now, what I want us to do, brothers and sisters, is just make sure that we get a bit of the context here, the previous verse in verse 16. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. So during Jesus' resurrection appearances, he had given instructions to them for where they were to meet him in Galilee. He had already told the women to let the men know uh, where they were to meet him in Galilee. And the significance of Galilee is was that Galilee was the home of Jesus, and it was the place where he did the majority of his years of ministry throughout the region of Galilee and beyond. And yes, he did ministry in Jerusalem um, and the vicinity there as well, but most of it was done in Galilee. And so they meet there, they return to Galilee to meet him there. Remember also that the Jewish authorities are still on the hunt for his disciples and would do harm to them if they caught up with them. So they go to a place in Galilee to see the Lord Jesus. And the Bible says in verse 17 that when they saw him, they worshiped him. Now, let me stop right there for a moment. Because right there, brothers and sisters, when we talk about the motive for making disciples, it begins with worship. Verse 17, worship. They bowed in worship to him when they saw him. They met him at the mountain in the sacred location that he had already appointed. And when they came together and they saw him, they worshiped him. This, brothers and sisters, 
was the right response when they saw him. I can only imagine that when we see him again, the first thing any of us will do is fall down in worship, bow down in worship to him. For he is worthy to be worshipped. That's the reason why we gather today. That's why we gather every Sunday, the first day of the week, to worship him together. That is why we gather as often as we do, and as much as we are able, to worship him together. When they saw him, they bowed in worship. Why? Because they saw, they were looking at the risen Savior the risen Lord Jesus Christ. The only proper response to him is worship. That's the only proper response to him is worship. Let us worship him even now as we are listening to the word of God, as we are reading this passage of scripture in Matthew 28. Let us worship him, brothers and sisters, worship him with obedience, Worship him with an attentive heart. Worship him by being engaged into the word of God being preached even now. Let us, let us listen to his word worshipfully even now, brothers and sisters, because he is worthy of our worship. So what motivates us to make disciples first and foremost is the obedience of worship. The obedience that is attendant to authentic worship. You can't worship the Lord and then not obey him. You see, worship is what leads us into surrender and obedience to his word. That is why we are listening to his word worshipfully. I'm listening to his word while I'm preaching his word. I'm not only preaching to you, I'm preaching to myself, even now. When they saw him, they worshiped him. But then the scripture says, some, but some doubted. No further context or commentary is given on that phrase but some doubt it. Because you see, that is the problem with us. Among the Lord's people is that there are those who still have the tendency to doubt. Some doubt it. Even here, even after all they had seen, experienced, and witnessed of the Lord Jesus Christ, they are looking at him in the flesh, here at this mountain in Galilee, he is there in person, in the flesh. And the disciples bow to him in worship. And yet even among uh, the disciples who are bowing to him in worship, there are some others among them, a few, no doubt, doubting in their hearts. What were they struggling with? That they could not believe? what their eyes 
were revealing to them that they were seeing the actual Lord Jesus Christ risen from the dead. It wasn't as though he had already told them that this was going to happen. He had been trying to teach them along the way on many, many occasions that this would happen. They just failed to understand. You see, it was the failure of human understanding uh, that caused them to doubt, not the lack of Jesus' teaching. They knew. They heard. Now they see, and a few of them have the audacity to doubt. They could not have doubted the miracles that they had seen him perform during the course of three to three and a half years, even raising people from the dead himself. Not too many days before this event, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. They would dare to witness it. And yet some still doubt. Brothers and sisters, let this be a word of warning and caution to us. Let us not doubt the risen Savior. Let us not doubt his word. Let us not doubt his promises. Let us not doubt what he has done. Let us not doubt what he has said. Listen, if you doubt that he is now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, reigning over the universe, then repent of your doubt, my friend. Get on your knees and turn to the Lord in repentance right now. There is no other proper response to dealing with our doubt but repentance. You see, they are seeing the proof in front of them. See, that's their problem. It's not as though they can say, well, I need more proof. You don't need any more proof. What greater proof could there be than the risen Lord Jesus Christ standing there in front of you? Some doubt it, but let it not be said of you, my friend. Let it not be said of me. Let it not be said of us that we were found among the some who doubted. Let it never be said. Let it never be a part of the record of heaven's testimony that we have doubted our risen Savior. I would rather worship than doubt any and every day of the week. For there is no basis for doubt. There is certainly no basis for doubt for them standing there staring at the Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh before them, risen from the dead. By the way, what was it that could have made them doubt anyway? Is there anything too hard for God? What do you think? That God could not raise his only begotten son from the dead? That God had already raised dead people in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus raised them. And that God had raised the dead before he sent Jesus into the world. 
just as the widow's son who was with the prophet Elijah. You see. Brothers and sisters, there is no right reason for doubt. There is no acceptable reason for doubt. And reason will not remove your doubt. Doubting is a choice. That's the problem with the some who doubted in this scenario in verse 17. They have absolutely no reason to doubt. And then on top of that, no amount of reason would persuade them out of their doubt because doubt is a choice. Doubt does not overtake us beyond our control unless we allow it. The only reason you doubt is because you have allowed yourself to doubt. But there is no right and there is no reason and there is no right reason for doubt. They worshiped him. And to worship him is an act of faith, not an act of doubt. Verse 18 we see not only that they bowed in worship to him, but then we see also here the breath of his authority. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We see here the breath of his authority and the bestowal of his authority right here at this point in verse 18. First of all, the breath of his authority, all authority in heaven and on earth. Now, I want you to think about this statement that Jesus is making right here at this all-important moment. All authority means all power. It means all exercise of power, all authority has been entrusted to him. That is to say, all authority in the universe. It, remi listen, it reminds me of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. The, the cosmic language of heaven and earth, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Remember that? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In other words, that in the beginning, God created everything there is. Everything that exists. Existence itself owes its reality to God. Were there no God, there'd be no existence. In other words, without God, nothing could exist. But because of God, everything that exists, exists. Even authority exists only because God exists. And God gave all authority to his son. That's what Jesus declares here in verse 18. All authority in heaven 
and on earth. In other words, all the authority in the universe has now been entrusted to Jesus after he has died and risen from the dead. In thinking about the breadth of his authority, I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me in the New Testament, toward the end of the New Testament, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. Hebrews, chapter 1 in your Bibles. Hebrews, chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. In fact, Hebrews, chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, says these words. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. You see here, Jesus Christ has been appointed heir of all things, and that God through him created all things. You see this creation language, hearkening back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, which we just uh, recited a moment ago. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Hebrews chapter 1 here says that through him, through Christ Jesus, God made the heavens and the earth, the entire universe and that Christ is the heir of all things, of the entire universe that he created with the Father. That is why he can say here at this point in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth. Now, take your Bibles from the book of Hebrews and turn back toward the left to Colossians chapter 1. Over in Colossians chapter 1, we have a biblical reference here that also supports what we're saying and what we're seeing right here in Matthew 28, 18. Colossians 1, verse 15. He, speaking of Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, the firstborn in terms of kind, not time, but in kind, the firstborn over all creation. Read on. For by him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. You see that, brothers and sisters? The scripture goes on. And he is before all things. That is to say, he takes preeminence. He is preeminent over all things. He is before all things. And in him, in Christ, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. That reference back to Genesis chapter 1. He, Jesus Christ, 
is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. By the way, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, you see. The breadth of his authority is limitless because the breadth of his authority extends to all things, to all people, to all of creation, to heaven and earth. You see, heaven and earth uh, is a figure of speech for everything everywhere, and everyone, everywhere. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. All authority. We see not only the breadth of his authority, but the bestowal of his authority in these final words of verse 18 here at this point, that all authority in heaven and earth, Jesus says, has been given, given to him. It's been given to him by the Father, by God the Father. I want you to turn back a couple of books in your New Testament. If you're in Colossians, turn back, past Philippians to the left, and back to Ephesians chapter 1. Because in Ephesians chapter 1, there's something to be said about the bestowal of his authority that we need to read here. Ephesians 1. And I want to begin, brothers and sisters, I want to focus on verses 19 through 22. But I'm going to begin at verse 18. Ephesians chapter 1. Beginning at verse 18, Paul's prayer. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. We are the saints. All who've been born again, by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are the saints. His glorious inheritance in the saints. Verse 19. And his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power, speaking of authority, that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Do you see this? Look at the richness 
of this scriptural language right here. Divinely inspired by God himself. These words, look at them with me, brothers and sisters. Speaking of his incomparably great power for us who believe, that power, verse 19, is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his, at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Jesus, at this point in Matthew 28, is risen from the dead and is about to be ascended back into heaven and seated at the right hand of God the Father. At this all-important point in Matthew chapter 28, in this appearance to the disciples on the mountain in Galilee, he declares, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It has been bestowed upon him. And scripture testifies to it here in the words of the Apostle Paul, written here in these verses 19 through 22 in Ephesians chapter 1. It is an authority, it is a rule, brothers and sisters, according to verse 21, that is far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And that God has placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything. Speaking of Jesus. So when Jesus says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, that means everything. All authority. So we see the breath of his authority and the bestowal of his authority. You see, the reason this is so important is because the motive for making disciples is based upon his divine authority. His authority, the authority of Christ. It is because of the authority of Christ that we have been called, commissioned, commanded to make disciples. Let me see if I can help us understand this even more clearly in our present context. What gives you the right or the permission to go and tell other people about God? What gives you and me the right and the permission not only to go tell other people about God, but also to inform other people who have not trusted Christ as their Savior that they are sinners, that they are lost in their sins, that they are without God and without hope in the world. The world looks at this as what audacity Christians have to come preaching to us, telling us that we are sinners, telling us that we are lost without God, telling us that we are on our way to hell. What audacity you have to come tell me about your God, they say. This is routinely how they respond. What arrogance you have. What made your God more important than anything I believe in? What gives you the right? If all religions have equal value, as 
people think, most people think these days, if all religions have equal value, then you Christians have no right to be trying to impose your religious beliefs on anybody else. And the sad truth is, is that there are too many of us in the church who actually agree with what I just said. The problem is this. Jesus has called us, commanded us, and commissioned us to tell the world about him and his saving grace. Why? Because John chapter 14, verse 6 says, Jesus says of himself, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, if you do not believe what Jesus said about himself in John chapter 14, verse 6, then you cannot be saved. You cannot be an authentic Christian. Because to be an authentic, genuine Christian believer is to believe what Jesus said of himself. And if, in fact, what Jesus said of himself is true, and it is absolutely true, brothers and sisters, then we have an obligation to tell people the truth. We're called to tell people the truth. For that was how we were saved. Somebody obeyed the Lord and told us the truth about God and about Jesus Christ, his son. And the Lord Jesus saved us. So despite all of the protestations of the non-Christian world, we have been called, commanded, and commissioned to speak the truth to them in love, even if they don't accept it, even if they don't want to hear it. I didn't say argue with them. I didn't say get into fights with them. I didn't say turn into some sort of a confrontational monster with them. None of that. Just share, speak the truth in love. Speak the good news of the gospel of Christ. And let God do the rest because only God can save the lost. All we're to do is to deliver the message, much like the mail, the mail carrier. <laughs> the mail carrier uh, has nothing to say or do with respect to what we do with our mail. The mail carrier's responsibility is to deliver the mail to us. Now, what we do with it is another matter. We as Christians are called to deliver the gospel to people. What they do with it is going to be between them and the God and the, the God of the gospel whom we deliver to them. It's going to be between them and God. But it's our responsibility to deliver good news to them. Good news. That God is God. That God not only exists, but that God reigns. 
and that God created everything that exists and that God has made a way for men, women, boys, and girls to be rightly related to him because humanity has been separated from God spiritually because of his sin, the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve which has separated all of us from God so that everybody born is born separated from God. But God has made a way for us to be reconciled to him. And that way is Jesus Christ, God's one and only son. And so that if you repent and believe that Jesus Christ is the one and only son of God and that he died on the cross for the sins of the world, including your sins, you shall be saved. You believe that God has raised him from the dead. You will be saved. That is to say, you will be rightly related to God. And in right relationship with God, your whole existence is transformed anew because of what Jesus Christ has done for you and for me. This is good news. Just because people don't accept it as good news doesn't mean we shouldn't deliver it to them. Brothers and sisters, we have been given authority to deliver his good news because he has called, commanded, and commissioned us to do so. So the motive for making disciples is based on his authority, not our authority, based on his authority. It's by his authority that we, we go forth with the good news. That's our answer to a skeptical and scornful, sinful world. Not only do we have the motive for making disciples here, but we have the mandate, the actual mandate itself, beginning in verse 19. After declaring that all authority in heaven and earth had been given to him, Jesus then goes on to say, therefore, verse 19, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Therefore, refers back to what Jesus had just said, what he had just proclaimed. On the basis of his authority, we are commanded to make disciples. And we make disciples by going. You see, brothers and sisters, if you were able to read uh, Jesus' mandate to us here in the original language, this is what you would discover. That the, the, the words make disciples in the original Greek is one word, and it's one word in an imperative form, an imperative grammatical form. So the only imperative here in the mandate is to make disciples. The word go, the word baptize, and the word teach, which we shall see in verse 20, those three words grammatically in the original Greek are participles participles surrounding the imperative to make disciples. 
In other words, we are to make disciples by going, baptizing, and teaching. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Now listen, let me, let me, let me, before I drill down on making disciples, since in, in, uh, in our English language, as well as in the Greek, the participle go is first here in verse 19. Therefore go, that is to say on the basis of Jesus' divine authority, go. This going reminds me of some very important scripture elsewhere that we need to take a look at. You see, God has never told us to do anything that he himself has not already first done. Why? Because he's God. I want you to turn in your Bibles back to Genesis chapter 1 again, all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 at the very beginning of your Bible. (laughs) Excuse me, Genesis chapter 3, not chapter 1, Genesis chapter 3. And I want you to make note of something very important. You see, on the basis of the divine authority given to Christ, he tells us, his disciples, to go and make disciples. That word go here, this word go has great significance for us because that is precisely what God did when our first parents sinned against him and found themselves as a result of their sin immediately separated from God. What did God do? God went looking for them. Go. Genesis chapter 3. I want you to look with me here. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. This is even Adam in the very act of disobedience to God. God had told them that they could partake of every fruit in every fruit tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that was in the middle of the garden. Here they are disobeying under the influence of the serpent. Verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. You see how they immediately recognized that everything between them and God has now changed because of their disobedience to the word of God. 
They, they disobeyed God's command. And as a result, they have now become sinners. They have gone from innocence to sinfulness now. In the one act of disobedience, and this one act of disobedience, this first act of disobedience, would misaffect every human being born after them. The proof of it being found in the next chapter, Genesis chapter 4. But look, look, look with me. Look with me. Read on. Verse 8. What did God do about it? Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? You see that? Verses eight and nine. You see, brothers and sisters, they heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden sometime later in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. And the Lord called out to them, where are you? What was God doing here? God was going forth. God was seeking the lost. God was the first evangelist. Here all the way back in the garden, seeking those who were separated from him, seeking sinners, seeking those who were hiding from him. That is why Jesus says here, in his commission to us. Therefore, go and make disciples. And make disciples, he says, of all nations. You see, God was the first to go. God was the first to come down from heaven into the garden, seeking Adam and Eve, who are now lost in their sin because of their disobedience to God. Go, therefore, Jesus commands. Yo, making disciples requires this proactivity, not passivity, but proactivity, brothers and sisters. Now I want you to take in your Bibles and turn with me all, all the way back to the New Testament, to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 10. Verses 1 to 3, Luke chapter 10, where the scripture tells us that Jesus, after calling his original disciples sent and others, sent them out. Luke 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others, speaking of disciples, and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. What was Jesus doing? Jesus was going. In fact, he had come all the way from heaven down seeking sinners, just as God the Father had come from heaven down to the Garden of Eden seeking sinners. That's why we are called to go seeking sinners in order to make disciples. Jesus here in his ministry sent 72 of them out 
two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. And then verse two of Luke chapter 10 says, he told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Wow. You see, brothers and sisters, Jesus practiced this with his disciples during his three and a half years of ministry while on earth. He embodied it himself and he taught his disciples to practice going in order to make disciples, you see. So making disciples requires proactivity, not passivity. But not only that, brothers and sisters, making disciples requires proclamation. Not only does he command us to go, but it's go and make disciples. Here's the deal. Making disciples, again, is the only imperative grammatical form in the verse here. Make disciples. Make disciples of all nations. You know, making disciples requires proclamation. It involves proclamation, brothers and sisters, that we are called to make disciples by proclaiming his word, by proclaiming and sharing the gospel, by proclaiming his name. This reminds me, by the way, of Isaiah chapter 42, verses 6 through 7. Isaiah chapter 42, where the scripture says there, I, the Lord, beginning at verse 6, Isaiah chapter 42, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open eyes that are blind to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Making disciples, brothers and sisters, involves proclaiming the good news of the gospel, which will open the eyes of the blind, set the captives free, and release those from the dungeon of darkness, the dungeon of the darkness of sin, you see. Make disciples is what he has called every one of us to participate in, making disciples, you see. I'm also reminded of Paul's words in Romans chapter one. I encourage you to turn to Romans chapter one with me. Romans 1, beginning at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, 
just as it is written in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4 in the Old Testament, the righteous will live by faith. Read on with me one more verse. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, that is to say, have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made, that is what has been created, so that men are without excuse. See, just remember this. However, non-believers react and respond to our message of good news. They have no excuse for rejecting God. I don't care what kind of excuses they come up with. I don't care what kind of reasons they uh, uh, manufacture. They have no excuse. They have no legitimate reason for denying God's grace. Other than the fact that they are sinners and sinners spend their lives doing exactly what Adam and Eve were doing, hiding from God, running from God, rejecting God, making excuses, and trying to deflect away from the real issue at hand. And the real issue is, what are you going to do with Jesus, whom God has given for the salvation of your soul? Make disciples, he says here, of all nations. Why? Because all have fallen under the condemnation of judgment because of sin. All have tried to suppress the truth by their wickedness, brothers and sisters. That is all the more reason why we must preach the gospel to them. Preach it to all nations. You see, the mandate of the church is to go make disciples. Meaning then that the mandate of every Christian is to go make disciples. In other words, Jesus has not called for you to simply sit in the pew and expect your preacher to do all of the preaching and all of the going and all of the gathering and getting of sinners to come to church. That's your calling because it is a constituent part of your salvation. Just like God sent somebody to give you the good news to lead you to faith in Jesus Christ, God is sending you and you and you and you and every one of us who are redeemed. He has not called us to passivity. He has called us to proactivity and proclamation. And listen to this, brothers and sisters. Listen carefully to me. You don't have to make up a script. 
to go speak to people about God's grace to them. We've already been given the script. It's called the gospel. And if you need to, listen, if you need to memorize it, then go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where we've been. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. You and I have already been given the script. Not only that, brothers and sisters, <clears throat> go proclaim what you hear from the pulpit of your church. You don't take notes, mental or otherwise, just to hold it and hoard it all to yourself. God is given, giving you a library of truth being taught to you so that you can be a reservoir of truth passed on to others. You're to be a river of truth, by the way, passed on to others, not a reservoir to hold it to yourself. Go and make disciples of all nations, everybody, everywhere as far as you can go, wherever you can go, and no matter who they are, red, yellow, black, white, brown, all are precious in God's sight. All are in need of the good news of the gospel. All need to be made disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. We have not only the motive and the mandate, but we also have the method for making disciples in verses 19 and 20. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. I'm going to stop right at this point today, brothers and sisters, as time has marched on. But let us stop at this point and think deeply on and drink deeply from the word of God here, the motive and the mandate for making disciples. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. Therefore, we are to make disciples by going by being proactive and by proclaiming, proclaiming the gospel, by telling people the truth we ourselves have been taught from the pulpit of our church. You have more than enough already, my brother, my sister. You have more than enough. You've been taught more than enough. You've heard more than enough. You've taken more than enough notes to be a good disciple maker to participate in the process of making disciples. Now, let me pause at this moment and say that if you are a part of this worship service today, but you are not a part of Christ, that you have not repented and believed the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, well, we've been trying to make a disciple of you by preaching and proclaiming the truth of God's word. 
So we call upon you to surrender to the authority of Jesus Christ. For all authority in the universe has been given to him after he died on the cross and rose from the dead. And he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, reigning over the universe. All authority and power in his possession. It is my prayer and our prayer as a church for you, my friend, that the power of God will break the stronghold of darkness on your soul. That right now the gospel will pierce the darkness of your heart and bring the light of the good news of the gospel flooding into your soul so that you repent right now and trust Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord for you. This is our prayer. This is our urging to you, my friend. For God is speaking while you still have time. When you die, it's eternally too late. And since no one knows where death is, now is the time to turn to the Lord while you still have time, while there is still opportunity, while God's arms are open wide to you in Jesus Christ. Repent and trust Christ as Lord and Savior, for he will save you from the eternal penalty and consequences of sin, and he will make you anew by the power of his death and resurrection from the dead. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for your grace. And together we pray for your grace to sinners, to those in need of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that they will repent and believe now, that by your convicting power, by the power of your word and your Holy Spirit, that you will bring repentance and faith to the soul of the sinner so that they might be saved even now. And, O oh God, we pray that your word, afresh and anew, will reinvigorate and renew the souls of the saints and give us the courage to carry out the great commission that you have commanded us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and in his name we pray, Amen and amen and amen.